Good morning, friends. I want to invite you guys to take your Bibles and to turn to Titus chapter 1, where for the next little bit of our time together, we're going to walk verse by verse through a section of several verses that are all about elders in the life of a local church. 2020 was a rough year for a lot of people for a lot of different reasons. Uh, Maybe with all the other things that were consuming headlines, you may have missed the uh, what seems to me unusual regularity of scandals in church leadership around our country that made it into major news outlets this year. I mean, I haven't done some sort of uh, comprehensive search by any means, but, but just a quick search revealed a megachurch pastor from New York City who resigned in disgrace over an affair, a president of a major Christian university, who resigned in disgrace over inappropriate photos, among other things discovered from his private life, a famous apologist, traveling speaker, Christian author, who was exposed for having a whole track record of abusive sexual relationships, another pastor who was forced to resign because of concerns related to a cover-up related to child protection policies and the failure to follow them, another pastor committed suicide, in the wake of his removal from a church that he founded over concerns about the abuse of power that he had shown over a track record in leadership there. And guys, these are just, (laughs) these are all just examples from 2020 and from a quick search that wasn't even comprehensive. And these are just the ones that made it into the newspapers that would show up in a Google search. This has has no record. It doesn't reach nearly far enough to to get a, a comprehensive accounting of just how much leadership in a church can cause problems for churches and the people that are in them. Church leadership can be dangerous. It can be dangerous for leaders who are just people and all too easily corrupted by power. It can be dangerous for churches who may be led by corrupt leaders who love themselves more than the churches they lead. Uh, There's just no sense in denying it. Unhealthy leadership is a terrible problem in the life of a local church. Not a hypothetical problem, an all-too-real problem. But it seems to me we've got a couple different options for responding to that problem that are available to us. One one option, I think this one's really common. Maybe you felt this in your heart as well. And one option for responding to the undeniable track record of of problems in church leadership is to to just cultivate a kind of built-in suspicion of leaders in the church. You might do this in an obvious and overt way. Plenty of people have left Christianity altogether because they experienced abusive leadership. Makes sense. You might do this in all sorts of other subtle ways, ways that you might not have even recognized. A kind of gut-level, guilty-until-proven-otherwise posture towards leaders in your church. Uh, Maybe a a quick-to-see-the-worst kind of instinct. Maybe a critical distance or a hesitancy to to give yourself over to their spiritual care because you're not sure where it would lead. That, that's one option for you in response to an undeniable problem created by church leadership that isn't healthy. Another option for responding to this undeniable problem would be to take healthy leadership more seriously than you ever have before and to be more invested than ever before in making sure your church has trustworthy and godly leaders. That's another response. That's the response that the Bible models all through. I mean, the Bible is relentlessly honest about the the problem of unhealthy leadership. 
The scandals that I just rattled off from our headlines from the last year, like there is, there is, uh, there is a matching scandal and then some. For every single one of those in the pages of the Scriptures, leaders are often going off the rails in the history of Israel and even in the local church. But the Bible never uses this honesty to fuel a kind of suspicion of leadership in general. Just the opposite. The, the, the terrible track record that unhealthy leadership has, has brought into the, the life of God's people, Old Testament and New, is, is actually what pushes the Scriptures into a consistent emphasis on making sure you've got healthy leaders. Because you can't do without leadership. You can't do without leadership. And, and unhealthy leadership will wreak havoc in your church. So, so what do you do with that? Well, Paul, here's what Paul did with that. I mean, in this letter that he, that he wrote to Titus to try to set up his succession plan, knowing his life was, was near the end of, uh, of, of his course, his ministry that he'd given himself to for all of these years was winding down, and, and now he's looking ahead and passing things on, passing that torch or that baton on to those that he, he had raised up in the faith under him, including this man Titus on the island of Crete. He, he's writing to him to set up his succession plan, and to make sure that things are filled out that Paul himself wasn't able to accomplish when he was there in person. So he writes this letter. We talked about this a lot last week. What's interesting to me is that the very first thing Paul says that Titus ought to do, as soon as Paul's done introducing himself and reminding Titus who he is, as soon as his greeting is over, the first thing that he says he's written to get Titus to do is to appoint elders in every town, in every local church, make sure you've got elders, and make sure your elders look like this. So, what we want to do this morning is, is try to come to an understanding of why this mattered so much to Paul, why he started his letter here, and why it matters so much for our church that we have elders like those Paul describes. I, I also want to make sure we spend plenty of time on this this morning because I know that for many of you, you're part of a church now led by elders for the first time. Uh, either because of your background has been in churches that don't have a plurality of elders like our church does or because you're new to Christianity in general. Maybe this is the first church that you've ever belonged to. So we want to take this opportunity that, that Paul has given us to, to actually zoom out a little bit at first and talk about what is an elder to begin with because that might not be a term that you have much familiarity with. We're going to zoom out first and take a, a broad look at what the Scriptures say about this office. Then we'll zoom back in onto the details of, of verses 5 to 9 in chapter 1. This is where Paul talks about what an elder should look like. So, so there we're going to spend most of our time. Who should be elders? How can you recognize them? And then finally, we'll, we'll, we'll zoom back out again, out of the details of the text, and try to respond to those details together. Because I know that most of you are not elders in the local church. So what, what do you do with a set of verses that are about elders? and what sort of men they should be. I want to help you with that by the time we're finished this morning. So three questions to guide our time together. What is an elder? That's question number one. Who should be elders? That's question number two. That's Paul's focus. That's where we're going to spend almost all of our time. And how should you respond to what Paul says about elders? That's question number three. That's where we'll quickly end. I want to begin by reading the verses that we'll consider this morning. I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's Word while I pick up in Titus chapter 1, verse 5, and then read through verse 9. This is the Word of the Lord. Paul writes, This is why I left you in Crete 
so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. This is God's word. You can be seated. What is an elder? I'm going to start there. I know that this term may not be familiar to all of you. So I want to give you a really quick definition of what an elder is. It's drawn from what the, the Bible teaches us. And then spend a couple of minutes breaking down the definition that I give you. Here's the definition, in case you want to write it down. An elder is one of a group of men called to lead and feed a local church together. An elder is one of a group of men called to lead and to feed a local church together. Now, let me, let me quickly break this down before we turn to the details that Paul lays out for us in these verses this morning. I'm going to give you three P's. I don't know where I got this. I picked this up from somewhere. This is not original to me. Three P's that help summarize this little definition and what the Bible has to say about an elder and what, what that role involves. Three P's. Here's number one. Pastor. P number one. Pastor. I'm tempted to play a little word association game with you guys today. I wonder if I was to say elder, what the first word would be to pop into your mind. I bet it would have something to do with age. That's my guess. You're thinking elder and you're thinking old. For the record, it has nothing to do with age. Uh, maybe, maybe the first word that pops into your mind. If you grew up in a Baptist church like the one that I grew up in, uh, maybe your first thought when you hear the word elder is Presbyterian. They're the ones that have elders. And that's true. Our Presbyterian friends do have elders, uh, but they are certainly not the only ones. They didn't come up with the term, and, and most Baptists in the early history of our, of our country had elders as well leading their churches. When the New Testament writers play the word association game with the word elder, the two words that come to mind quickly that, that fit into passages where elders are talked about are the words overseer and pastor. Words related to shepherding and to oversight. Let me give you a couple of examples. Here's Acts chapter 20. This is Luke writing about Paul's ministry. He writes, Now from Miletus, he, meaning Paul, sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. There it is. Now listen to the way the elders are addressed by Paul. When they came to him, he, Paul, said to them, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. All right, now he's referring to shepherding. Now he's referring to, to pastoring. Pastor just means shepherd. In which the Holy Spirit, Paul writes, has made you overseers. There's that word again. So think direction, management, oversight. To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. There's Acts 20. There's that package. Elder. Something related to shepherding, which our word is pastor. And oversight. Now listen to the same package again in 1 Peter chapter 5. 
First Peter chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, Peter writes, I exhort the elders among you, here we are again, same office, as a fellow elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed, here's his exhortation. Shepherd, there's the pastor word again, shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight. There's that word again. When the New Testament thinks elder, it thinks pastor, it thinks oversight. The term elder was just a familiar term available to them from their background as as Jewish believers. The first Christians were mostly coming out of Jewish synagogues. The main leadership office in the Jewish synagogue was the office of elder. They took what they were familiar with and applied it to the local church. But when they filled out what this elder was supposed to do, they used words that had to do with with oversight of the life of the church and with, with shepherding, doing the kinds of things that a shepherd would do for a flock. What does a shepherd do for its flock? Well... They take them to good and nourishing food. They make sure they have what they need to to grow healthy and and, and to thrive. They guide them in wise and safe directions. Sheep wander. Shepherds protect them from the effects of their wandering. They, They try to keep them from wandering off a cliff or into a den of wolves or whatever. Shepherds oversee the direction of the sheep. For elders, that means overseeing the direction of the church overall. Sometimes some decisions are better made by a group of folks who have the time and the energy to spend carefully considering a bunch of details that would be too difficult for the whole congregation to consider. Sometimes that's what the leadership looks like. Sometimes it's very personal. Shepherds get into the details of the lives of an individual in their church who needs care. And shepherds and guides them towards a place that will be healthy for them. But one way or another, what you see when the Bible talks about this office is, is a person responsible to, to lead and to feed. When you think elder, I hope you think pastor, shepherd, one who leads and feeds God's church. Here's the second P. Plurality. Did you notice that Paul says in verse 5 that he, he, he had left Titus and directed him He left him on Crete, giving him direction to appoint elders in every town. So everywhere you've got a church, in every town where there's a church, you need elders, plural. Guys, that's not just this one reference. Every reference to elders in the New Testament is in the plural. And that's not an accident. Because Paul and the others who were setting up the church understood what we're like. They know that everybody's limited. Nobody has everything they need on their own to see the whole picture. No one has enough energy on their own, to keep going under the demands of a stressful ministry life. It matters that you got brothers in arms. It matters that you're, that you're filling out each other's blind spots and weaknesses, that you're there to carry one another when someone is weak. It, it matters that you do this work together because that's more healthy for each individual elder and because that's way more healthy for a local church who, whose needs are going to be much bigger than any one man could ever fulfill. Every time elders are mentioned in the New Testament, it's a group. So think plurality. And finally, think parity. When you think about an elder, what is an elder? Think pastor. Same thing. If you're familiar with what a pastor does, you know what an elder does. Think plurality. The New Testament model is there's always more than one of them. They work together as a team. And finally, think parity, by which I mean they're equal. They're equal. So in our church, the members of our church have affirmed seven men to serve as our church elders right now. All of us have different personalities and skill sets and training, and, and those differences are a precious gift to us as elders and to our church overall. Uh, in so many ways, those differences serve us. But we ultimately share the same office. 
And the same overall responsibilities. We're all pastors. We're all overseers. We're all elders. Jonathan and I have this incredible privilege of of, of doing the work of a pastor full-time. You guys give our families money so that we don't have to get other jobs and are able to spend all of our time focusing on the needs of our church. That is an incredible privilege. And, And some specific assignments come our way because we have more time than our fellow elders do to give to the church. The group has, has delegated to us certain things that we do that fit our training or our skills or our interests. But, but, but we all share the same office. Jonathan and I are not in a different class than the other guys are in. We want to work hard around here to avoid the impression that the staff guys are the pastors and the other guys are like a board of directors maybe that's in place to make sure all the numbers line up and that the staff is held accountable and the organizational mission stays on point or, or whatever a board of directors does. That, that's not how it works. Ultimately, we're all pastors and all responsible to faithfully lead and feed our church. What is an elder? An elder is just one of a group called to lead and to feed God's church together. Hopefully, that's a little bit helpful. And I'd be happy to recommend some other books if you're interested in going further into what the Bible teaches about this important office. What I want to do from now for most of the remaining time that we have is go deeply into the weeds of this little section in Titus chapter 1. I want to ask the question, who should be elders? Because that's what Paul's writing here to answer. He's given Titus a job to do. Make sure that every church has elders in it. You're going to need that for the succession plan to work. The apostles are dying off. No one's coming to replace them. Now what we need is a system that can carry this thing forward and make sure that the the word I've handed on to you stays clear, stays central in the life of each local church. For that, you're going to need elders. But but he, he also wants to help Titus know who he's looking for. And by helping Titus know who he's looking for, he's helping us know who we're looking for to fill the, the, the role that our local church needs. And something that really strikes me about this section of verses, and a very similar one in 1 Timothy, is that when, when, Paul, when Paul writes to explain who to look for, he doesn't actually focus on skill sets, not even really on experience or background. He doesn't focus on the kinds of things that you would look for if you were looking to fill a corporate board of directors. If you're looking to fill the seats on a corporate board, you're probably looking for men with connections, with a proven track record of success in business. You know, folks with solid connections who can help the organization make, uh, make inroads and in new, in new opportunities. You're looking for folks maybe with deep pockets, especially for a nonprofit leadership, and there's going to be donor connections there. But for the work of an elder, for the work of, of teaching and guiding God's people, what matters far more than the length of your resume or the scale of your accomplishments or the, or the, the, the size of your pocketbook is the kind of person you are known to be, the kind of person you're known to be. Paul wants Titus to look for men who are above reproach. That phrase comes up twice in each case. It comes up ahead of some examples he gives of what he has in mind when he says above reproach. He doesn't mean sinless. That person doesn't exist. He doesn't mean literally without any need for correction. Everybody needs correction. Otherwise, we'll just stay in our blind spots and never grow. That's not what he means. He wants him him to look for people who are known for the godliness that comes up so often in this letter. And what follows are examples of what that means, what it looks like to be above reproach. He's not giving us a comprehensive list here. He's just sort of roughly sketching out 
a type of person who's qualified to serve in this office. And, and he tells Titus to look for three things. And I'm going to walk you through each one. Three things to consider as you're answering who should be an elder for your local church. First of all, Paul says to Titus, consider his family life. Consider his family life. Look with me uh, down at verse 6. First time that he mentions someone who's above reproach, the examples he gives of what he has in mind are the husband of one wife and children who are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Consider his family life. let Let me walk you through this first to make sure it's clear to you what he's actually telling Titus to consider. And then we'll talk about why it matters so much, why this consideration is so important to, to be worth a spot in this list. So, so here's, what I think, here's what I think he has in mind in verse 6. I think he has in mind sexual faithfulness and effective fathering. Sexual faithfulness and effective fathering. When, when, you, when you first hear him say, it's got to be a husband of one wife, it, you might think only married guys can be elders, and that's not what he means. I mean, that would eliminate Paul. He wasn't married. Jesus wouldn't have qualified as an elder in this local church if that's what he had in mind. It's not what he has in mind. He's also not, probably not thinking about polygamy and, and saying, make sure you don't get a polygamist in there. I mean, that He would say that if he needed to, but polygamy was so rare at this time. It's just not the kind of thing you would expect Paul to address. Much more likely, according to the commentators that have helped me on this verse, he, what he has in mind is just general sexual faithfulness. If he's married, he should be a one-woman man. In other words, if he's married, his heart and his body belongs to his wife and to no one else. She is his world. He prioritizes her and pursues her and delights in her and actively works to look away from every other woman that is. Paul knows enough. See, see, here's the thing. Paul was a student and scholar of Israel's history. And he knows exactly what a lack of sexual faithfulness did to Israel and its leaders. He knows how devastating sexual sin can be in the life of a leader and those he leads. And he knows, he knows that faithfulness will not get easier for you when you become an elder. In some ways, it may become much harder. You may have opportunities for infidelity in a leadership role you wouldn't have had otherwise. Headline after headline attests to this fact. I I just gave you a few examples a few minutes ago. You can find plenty more if you have the interest to look. So when you're looking for elders, you're looking for men who by God's grace have shown their faithfulness to the boundaries God has given us for our sexuality, who are known for that. Is this man sexually faithful? And is this man an effective father? I think these words that Paul gives us about children can be misleading too. Kind of like you know, we, we, might, we might mistake what he says about the, uh, being a husband of one wife as, as a word that, that no one who's not married should have a place as, uh, among the elders. That's not what he means. Similarly, when he says, well, the way my translation puts it, his children have to be believers, we, we, could, we could see in that that anyone who's got a child who's not a professing baptized Christian shouldn't be an elder. That isn't what he has in mind uh, and if it were, I mean, as soon as an elder had a new baby, he'd be disqualified all of a sudden. That baby's not a believer, hasn't been, hasn't, isn't professing faith, hasn't been baptized. That, that isn't what he has in mind. What, what is he talking about here? It's it, not that 
The elders' kids have to be perfect. We know those kids don't exist. Not that elders have to be perfect fathers. We know those don't exist either. I think what Paul has in mind here is a track record of careful and intentional spiritual leadership in the home that's respected by his family. Careful and intentional spiritual leadership in the home that the family respects. So that whether or not his, his children personally believe and are baptized into the church yet, they honor and respect his authority. They don't, they don't actively resist it. Of course kids are going to disobey. But do the kids look to their father as someone worthy of leadership in their own life, especially as they get older? And the reason this matters is that the skill and faithfulness required to lead a church is very similar to what's required to lead a family. I mean, weakness in one area in your family life is going to show up in the other area too, weakness in, in, in leading a church. Here's how Paul put it in 1 Timothy 3. It gives the same exact uh, requirement in his other list, in his letter to Timothy. But then he tacks this on, 1 Timothy 3, 5. He says, if someone doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? It's relevant, in other words. And here's why. Hey, we, we need to be very careful here, guys. Let me slow down. And you'd be really careful here. It would be all too easy to use this text to justify a problem that's all too common in church life. And that is to put a pastor, an elder's family under a kind of glass dome open to the scrutiny of everybody else where every choice and every mistake and every weakness is amplified. It means the world to us that you guys have never expected us to live that way. Never, not once. Pastors or elders are humans. Their families are full of humans. And they need the grace and support and counsel and forgiveness that everybody else needs for all the same reasons. However, however, having said that, their family life is relevant to the qualification for this role of elder. It is. Think about it. This requirement right here is a barrier against hypocrisy, which can be all too common in leadership. If a man spends his time and his energy talking to others publicly about God and his word, nurturing and guiding people from up front on a platform but behind closed doors, he neglects his family, doesn't pursue them, doesn't talk about spiritual things as a normal part of their family life, as just like part of what's discussed over dinner. And what does that say about his public role and about the true values that are lying underneath it? It probably says that he that he likes the position more than the people or the God who put him in it, that God is a means to an end, that the job is a job, that the platform matters more than the spiritual food he offers from it. A man who leads from a genuine conviction that this, this word is good, that it's necessary, that it works, is going to believe that no matter what his context. Wherever he is, he takes that with him. And it shows up in the normal things he talks about and in what he wants to do with all of his relationships. Look for a guy with a track record of leading spiritually. Or consider this. on why the man's family life is relevant to whether he should hold this office. If a man's family is in crisis through no fault of his own, but he's giving tremendous amounts of time and energy to leading his church, isn't that a sign that his priorities are out of order? 
It could be that things are going on with, this, with an elder's children that, are, that have nothing to do with his spiritual leadership. He can't control his kids. They're, indip- they're individuals. But if the needs have reached the point that it, that it needs all of his attention, where, it, where that, that child has no other father, he's the only one they've got. He's got to be all in there. But, but instead he's choosing to divide his time and give his time to other people who are in crisis, knowing that he's got other elders to rely on to fill in the gaps. So that's a guy whose priorities are out of whack. It's relevant to the work, knowing what, he, what his home life is like. How do you know who should be an elder? Well, Paul says, consider his family life. Is he sexually faithful to his wife, if he has one? Sexually faithful if, if he doesn't? Is he an effective father whose family looks to him for leadership and guidance and follows his lead? That's what you're looking for. Here's number two. Consider not just his family life. Next, Paul says, consider his character. The next time Paul uses the the language of above reproach, you'll see it in verse 7. An overseer, remember, that's a a stand-in for elder, a stand-in for pastor. An overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. Here's what I mean, the rest of verse 7 and verse 8. He gives us a a, a kind of batch of character qualities that, 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 that you shouldn't, have if you want to serve as an elder, and a batch of character qualities that you should have. They, they operate like a, like a mirror image of one another, like a photo negative. Let's, let, let's look at the list of negatives first. It's not meant to be comprehensive. Again, this is just sketching out a general picture, and I think it comes out pretty clearly. Look at, look, let's see if you can agree with me. Verse 7, this guy must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. And this package deal here is a picture of somebody who's just kind of out of control. Somebody who's impulsive and self-absorbed. Somebody who does what he wants and wants what's best for himself. Kind of a loose cannon, but not just a loose cannon. Not just unconstrained, self-centered. I mean, what makes you angry if not that your way didn't come about? That somebody got between you and what you wanted. What is arrogance if not a a centering of the world on you? What is violence or drunkenness if not a decision that no matter the cause, no matter the fallout, I should have what I want when I want it? Now look at the list of positives. Pick up in verse 8. This is kind of like a, again, like a photo negative. It, it's just the opposite of the list that, that comes out in verse 7. Instead of, instead of these things, look for somebody who's hospitable. Isn't that perfectly tailored as an opposite to those things we've just read? And somebody who's hospitable is somebody who's just open-handed. Like, hey, come on. What I have is yours. Generous. Not self-absorbed, but, but self-giving. He should be a lover of good, Paul says. In other words, he loves what God says for its own sake. He can see why it's beautiful. He's not, he's not just following the rules because he has to. When he sees what God says is good, he gets why it's good, and he loves it, not just because of what it pays off, how it might pay off, of what he might get from it, but because it itself is good. God made it good. He loves God's ways, and that good is bigger than him. He's to be self-controlled, Paul says, not impulsive, not... Not, always, always checking his instincts, reining in what comes natural to him. He doesn't trust himself, in other words, more than he ought to. And that leads him to be upright and holy and disciplined. These are 
These are all words that picture God's standards as mattering to him because they're God's standards. He wants what God wants. Upright is just righteous, just the good as God has defined it. Holy is to be set apart from what, from, from what isn't good, just like God is. Discipline is, is aiming your life towards what God has said is good. In other words, this is a guy who knows his limits and limits himself accordingly. He knows he is a man under authority. And here's why this matters so much. I mean, I could, I could give you so many examples of why this batch of character qualities matters so much, but uh, let, me just give you, let me just give you a couple examples. One, one for why this matters so much for the elder himself, and then one for why the, this matters so much for the, the people that the elder leads. Think about it. For the elder himself, if, if you're impulsive, if you're not self-controlled, if you, if, you, if you tend towards quick temper and violence and greed, well, you're probably also impatient, too. People don't always change quickly. Sometimes people don't change quickly because they don't take your advice. Sometimes it costs you a lot to give them the advice that they're not taking. And pastoring can be a lot like parenting in that way. And if you don't have patience and a confidence in what God can do over time, then you're either going to burn yourself out or you're going to crush the people that you lead. If you're impulsive like that, you won't have what you need to do the actual real work of pastoring in real people's lives. If you're arrogant and self-absorbed, you're going to probably take it personally when people don't believe that you made the best decision that anyone could make under those circumstances. That's going to happen sometimes. And it's nobody's fault that it happens sometimes. It's, it's, it's inevitable because as elders, you're going to be dealing with decisions that affect the life of a church that's precious to a whole bunch of different people. They're stakeholders in the church that you lead, and their perspectives are always going to be different from one another. There's just no way they could all see a decision in the same way. That means every decision is going to have some people that don't think that was the best thing to do. That's good. You want this. But it means displeasing people. And sometimes the decisions that you've made will be based on factors that most people won't be able to see, factors that you can't talk about. And that means that even if you made the right call, sometimes you're going to be misunderstood. And not by people who are out to get you, but by people who love you, who love your church, people you love. But people who can only see what they can see. They just they don't have the access to what you use to make the decision you made. That's nobody's fault. That's just what comes with leadership. And if you're a self-absorbed person, if you're somebody who's quick-tempered and arrogant, and somebody doesn't immediately fall in line with what you thought was best, you're going to be miserable in ministry, and you should stay away. It matters not just for the elder, though. This batch of character qualities, this type of person, it matters for church, too. It matters for you that you know these are your leaders. Because let's just, take, let's just push the example I've been working on here. On the flip side, as a member, sometimes you're going to have your church life affected by decisions that you couldn't see into. Hopefully that doesn't happen that often. You know, everybody wants a church culture of transparency where wherever we can show what's going on, we show what's going on. Nothing to hide. Hopefully this won't happen that often, but, but sometimes you will be affected by decisions that you couldn't see into. And when that happens, when you can't understand where the elders were coming from, you're going to need to trust their character. 
you're going to need to know that they aren't trying to fleece you because these guys aren't greedy for gain. That's not their end game. They're not trying to pad their wallets. You're going to need to know they're not self-serving because these guys, they love what's good. They love God's ways. They want to honor him. Whatever they took into account, they considered it carefully and as a group, and they prioritized the kind of things I would want them to. You're not going to ever come to a place where you believe they must be right because of who they are. No one is right all the time. No leader knows everything. Not even a group of leaders, qualified leaders, will always get it right. But you'll need to know that whatever they decided came from love and from care and from Christ-like character that you know and trust. I don't see how you can thrive. Guys, I don't see how you can thrive in a local church where you don't know that's who's leading you and have the ability to trust them. Now, let me give you one more example from Paul's list of what we ought to consider to know who should be an elder. Paul said, consider his family life, consider his character. You're going to need to know you can trust these guys, even if you can't understand where they're coming from. And finally, you're going to need to consider his teaching. Consider his teaching. Up till now, uh, in, in these verses, Paul has focused on character over skill. I mentioned that earlier. And he's focused on traits that are goals for all Christians, not just for elders. I mean, everybody wants to be or should be. As a Christian, you should want to be not arrogant but humble, not quick-tempered but patient and generous and gracious. You're going to want to be hospitable and a lover of good. That's, those, are, those are qualities that are for all Christians everywhere. But at this point, in verse 9, Paul introduces a qualification that isn't supposed to be universal. Not everyone will have this one, but an elder must He must hold firm, Paul says, to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. This man must be able to teach. Let's break this down together. Here's what you consider. Does this guy hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught? When Paul says trustworthy word, he means the gospel. In chapter 3, he uses that exact same phrase, trustworthy word, just after he's given one of my personal favorite summaries of the gospel anywhere in the Bible. In chapter 3, Paul reminds them that when, before Jesus intervened in your life, you were lost and without hope in the world. You'd made a mess of your life because you'd prioritized yourself over anyone and anything else. But right where you were, still as sinners, God's mercy intervened. And because of his loving kindness, he sent his son to pay a price that you couldn't pay so that you could could inherit a righteousness you could never have earned because of his mercy, not because of works done by us in righteousness. This is Titus chapter 3, the first little section there. It's gold. That's the trustworthy saying. So you want to make sure that the elders in your church hold fast to that gospel, that it's enough for them that they realized they didn't come up with it, that it came from God. And that makes them stewards of it, not tinkerers with it. It doesn't need help. It's already the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. You want elders who trust it's worthy of their trust and needs no adjustment. But then you're going to need guys who can help other people understand that same thing. He has to be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. He's got to be able to hold on to that for himself and then pass it on to others so that they can see it 
Not everyone has this skill. Not every Christian is meant to have this skill. Of course, we are all called to minister to one another. There is a kind of discipleship that's the job of every single Christian, but we have different skill level in doing that, some because of different spiritual maturity and some because of just different gifts that God has given us. You need to make sure that your elders have the ability to teach this trustworthy word that they hold on to. And they've also got to be able to rebuke those who contradict it. That's verse 9. And think, when, when you see this, think, think not a guy who's just pugnacious, who likes to fight all the time, who's just always up for, for mixing it up over doctrine. I, that could be a really bad sign about that guy's character if that's just his stick, and, 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 you're, and you're always seeing him go there. That, that's not what Paul has in mind. What he has in mind is discernment. Does the guy have the ability to separate out what's true from what's false? Can he listen to something that's sort of making its way around the church? And help other people see what should be kept and what should be left behind. It's not enough to just hold on to the genuine currency. You've got to be able to recognize the counterfeit. And it's, guys, it's no fun to do that. That's not why anybody gets into this work if he's worthy of it. But you don't want a guy who uses this as an excuse. You've got to be careful. This is not just some excuse for arrogance and and, and a judgmental posture towards every little disagreement he might have with somebody. You're not looking for a fighter here. But you are looking for discernment. Somebody who can, who can know when a truth has come packaged with error. Because listen to this. This is, this is not hypothetical. This is the history of the local church. The most devastating heresies in the history of Christianity have come with big, whopping grains of truth right in the middle of them. Early on, those had to do with who Jesus is. Some people denied that he was God because they were so committed to him being human. And he has to be human. So much of our hope depends on the fact that he lived like we did. He knows what it's like to be us. He died a death that we deserved as our representative. If he's not a human, we have no hope. But for them, holding on to that good truth meant, meant shaving off the rough edges they couldn't quite understand. How could he also be divine? And Jesus' identity was compromised. Same thing happened the other direction. For some people, they, they, got, they just bought all the way in on Jesus being divine. They could see why that had to be true. But, but for them, the only way they could reconcile it was to kind of knock off the edge of his humanity. He must not have been fully human. These heresies get, get traction because there's a lot of truth in them. And guys, we are not finished with that kind of teaching. It's still with us. It's changed We'll be tempted to different things than people were in, in the, the, the fourth century Roman Empire. But what we'll be tempted to at one level is the same thing, to take something the Bible tells us is true, to elevate it to an ultimate standing, and then to, to shave off parts of the Bible's teaching that we can't reconcile with it. We'll say, as the serpent did to Eve in the garden, did God really say and if we're to be protected from that, we need to have men who are willing to rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine, who are willing to say, who have the instincts to say and the willingness to say, not that, not for my sheep. Now, friends, our time is nearly gone. But I realize that most of the time that we've spent here, we've spent talking about an office that most of you don't hold and won't hold. And I don't want to leave you with that. 
I want to leave you with something you can take for you because these words are for you. They made it into the canon because they're good for all of us, not just for those of us who will serve as elders. And I want to help you. I want to give you three things that you can take with you. Just write them down and to think about them. In response to what Paul has said about elders, how should you respond? Let me give you just three examples. First, let me suggest to you that you give thanks to God for the elders that he's given you. Godly leaders are indispensable for a healthy church. We've already talked about that. We cannot do without them. And if, and, if, and if you guys will let me just exempt myself from what I'm about to say for the moment and talk for a minute about the brothers I serve you with, then, then what I want to say to you is that godly leaders are exactly what God has given us. Exactly. I have a better view than most people do of how these brothers serve and of the character that, that they bring with them into every situation. And I'll, I'll just tell you, I am consistently amazed at what the Lord has given us in them. I'm, I mean, here's another way to put the same point. I'm just deeply grateful beyond words that my wife and my children and that I myself live our lives under their care. They aren't perfect men, but they know that they're not perfect men. They're humble. They love you deeply, and they love God's word, and they're careful, and they're patient, and they disagree vigorously with grace towards one another. And it got, it's a precious thing to be led by elders like this. Give thanks to God that that's who he's given to you. And then, second suggestion for you, pray for them, pray for us. Pray for the elders God has given you. Please don't take this as an obvious aside. The evil one hates local churches. He knows that God's kingdom moves forward through healthy local churches all over the world. That's always been God's plan. The evil one knows that plan back and forth. And he knows that if you want to bring down a local church, if you want to zap it of its health and vitality, if you want to distract it in all sorts of internal dissension, then the best way to do it is a crisis in leadership. See how many men have fallen, even in this last year. At, a, at one level, these men who have fallen were not different from the men who lead your church. See what devastating effects their fall has had on the lives of the people under them and on the reputation of the church around them. The stakes are so high, even for a small church like ours, and the men who lead your church are frail men. On their own, they cannot stand. We can't stand. And this is war that we're in. It, that's how the Bible describes it. This is a war. So pray that each day we will put on the armor of God. Read Ephesians 6. Pray that for your elders. Do you realize that God may intend to protect us through your prayers? And while you're at it, pray that he'll raise up more godly elders. We, we need more, always. And finally, the last suggestion for you as we close. Please do give thanks. Please pray for us. And then all things being equal, here's my last suggestion for you. Follow the elders that God has given you. I, I get that that's a little awkward for me to say as one of them. I'm basically telling you to follow me. 
but you know, guys, if you think I'm the sort of leader who would tell you to follow me as a, a kind of power trip that I'm on because I love controlling people's lives, you've already wasted too much time in this church. Don't stick around for a guy like that. If that's who I am, you can't thrive spiritually in a church where you wonder if that's what I'm up to. But if you do trust us, then let me raise something crucial from the teaching of the New Testament leadership on leadership. You've got to find godly leaders you trust because you're actually called to trust them. <laughs> you are actually called by God to follow them. Listen to what he says in Hebrews 13. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. I, I, this week I read somebody commenting on the fact that out of those verses, the thing we're most quick to, to jump on is the call to obey or to submit. And we want to know what that means. Let's, let's draw some boundaries around that. That doesn't sound right. And our, our, our radars are up, and we know that's not always gone well. But how interesting that in, the healthy, in a healthy church, as a counterculture to the world out there, we ought to start with what it would mean to make their work a joy. To not jump to, oh, warning signs about the obedience and the submission, but to jump through, they should do this with joy and not with groaning. How can I be part of that? Guys, you can trust your leaders not ultimately because you trust them, but because you trust the Lord who gave them to you. That if all things are equal, and you got good reason to see in them these things that Paul has brought to the surface in Titus 1, you can trust it that the Lord intended to lead you as a Christian forward all the way to glory through these men as long as they're elders over you. You can trust him and follow them without fear because it's always about him. If this is who you've got leading you, they know they're under shepherds, that, that, that you are his flock, and they're looking to him to be of use to you. Don't give them your ultimate allegiance. That belongs to Jesus. Don't give them blind allegiance. No human besides Jesus deserves that. But give them your genuine trust, a default posture, not of suspicion, but of confidence, a benefit of the doubt that they have earned through their character and even a desire to be led well by them. Let me pray now that the Lord will give us this culture of leadership in our church and this sort of support for the leadership he's given us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this portrait. We're humbled by it and know that apart from your grace, not one of us will measure up to it. But we thank you that your ways are good, that you always give us what we need to do what you've called us to do, including giving us elders, frail and weak and limited though they be, to lead our local church in this time. We pray that you would protect us and that you would help us to trust in what you've given us. And ultimately, we pray that our church would be healthy as a result to bring you honor and glory in this city. In Jesus' name, amen.